Oh, Drebin. I don't want any more trouble like you had last year on the south side. Understand? That's my policy. Yes. Well, when I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of 100 people, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. That was a Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, you moron. You killed five actors. Good ones. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 94 in the list of the 100 films that shaped our view of cinema and the arts in general. Mm, and that sounds very pretentious. But you know what? We're getting learned at this, I think. Yeah, I think as the series goes, we're getting more pretentious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which is a nightmare because we were already pompous assholes to, like in the beginning. Yeah, we're just adding new layers of douche to yeah, our personality. Yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah. Pretty soon we're going to be near the level of Mitch McConnell, and it's going to be great. Hopefully not. Hopefully we can avoid that. We can jump over the Mitch McConnell douche level and hit something else. Well, all we have to do is look in the mirror, and if our head continues to like proceed down, like recede into our necks, yep. and we look like a turtle at some point, then we know we need to pull Oh, back. that's the Republican neck belt. Well, that's, absolutely. Yeah, that's a thing. All right, so we are... Um, we actually got lost in the forest last week, so now we are recording live from um, the Pivotal Film Cave, deep somewhere in the caverns of somewhere in Connecticut. And all I we're, don't know. All we're doing is looking at a wall. We see shadows. We're not necessarily sure if that's a real thing, but we think this is real life. We're just seeing shadows. Yep. Somebody's telling us something about Plato. And we knows. have. Dis- <laughs> I'm <laughs> explaining the joke there. We have decided that the shadows we saw in the cave are the movies we were going to watch this yeah, week. So absolutely. If we seem like we get them wrong, <laughs> if it's- that's. If that's the thing we're talking about, then I, I think you chose poorly with the uh, shadow you chose. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. Um, all right. So let's – we got a beer in front of us. It's in yeah, a let's, bright let's pink hop into can. it. You notice, once again, we're, t- we're mentioning this, but the interesting thing about these beer conversations I've noticed is that in the beginning, we were only talking for a minute or so. But now in episode 96, 95, we're talking for about five or six minutes. And this is just yeah. furthering my hypothesis that we are going to become a beer podcast. And I also feel the need when I'm writing up like my little summary things to timestamp the beer conversations. Oh, absolutely. It seems like a necessary thing to do. Well, I actually, before we began, <laughs> uh, you brought the beer today. And I was like, wait, before we start off air, I need to write down information about this Get beer. some beer notes ready. Yeah, because the untapped community... That's an app. That, that I know, yeah, I know. I've been yeah. told to jump on it a number of times. Oh, those people. Those untapped people. I want to like, know what you're drinking. And I was like, I'm going to do CrossFit, I'm a vegan, and I have an untapped. <laughs> if I did untapped and you know, people could keep track of what I was drinking, every day it would just be like Corona and Dos Equis. <laughs> no, there would be Miller's High Life. No, actually, I've been drinking that much High Life. What? I've been buying limes and drinking Coronas. It's hot. Is this an evasion of body snatcher situation here? <laughs> no, Are you the actual Tom out. Nolan? It's just hot out. Anyways, uh, let you introduce the beer because you brought it today. Yeah, it's uh, another Connecticut beer. It's uh, Kent Falls Brewing Company. I think this is our first Kent Falls. We did a collaboration earlier, uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. 
Yeah, the collaboration with Banded Bro- uh, Banded Brewing, the uh, one with the spruce tips. Oh, that was a Kent Falls collaboration. Yes, I don't think was. I listed it, but it was it was Banded Brewing. So okay. Closely. Um, it is an imperial pale ale called Line Aversion. Only six percent, which is surprising. I I mean I assume you know most pale ales are around a five percent, so six percent is an imperial style. But mm-hmm. usually you're imperial and you're expecting a big punch. Yeah, I thought it was going to be more too, but too um, yeah, so, it's in a bright pink can, some crayon letters on the front. Very attractive. Oh yeah, got got the nice little yellows in Kent Falls. Well, you know, I, I, I like the minimalism that Kent Falls does with its can art. Yeah, and there's a couple of them. And this is gonna the picture of the can is gonna be on our Instagram, right? At Pivotal Film. Is that what is that all you do for Instagram? Is just go to Instagram and put in, put in Pivotal Film. There's no like site name or anything like that. You just look up at Pivotal Film. That's the, it. I I hope. Okay. If not, in the next episode, I will, we will correct you, all the errors. Yeah, we'll tell you that we canceled the Instagram thing because it was more complicated than we thought. We were actually kicked off of Instagram for some reason. We're just being it's like sad. adult film stars and Pivotal Film have been banned from Instagram. Ah, bummer. Well, they can come hang out in our cave, I we guess. share good company with Tori Black. All right, you ready? Ooh. That was an interesting pop there. I mean, you usually like, get like a... But it's like a... It's like a drink me. Drink me, Seymour. <laughs> Dink. Well, um, this is good, I guess. I, I actually did not taste it when I first drank it, which might be a symbol of, of my problem. But I just literally put it in my mouth and swallowed, which I've been known to do. That's what she said. It, it doesn't work when I do like the subtlety, works. which not even not even that subtle. It always works. No, fair enough. Um, I, I once again took a sip and I didn't didn't <laughs> taste it. I don't know what's going on Acknowledge here. Acknowledge it. Right, I'm going to keep this. All right, here we okay, go. Gonna, here here. Drum roll. Okay. Ready to breathe. A lot of malt in the front. Mm. Um, ah, but it has that syrupiness at the end. Well, there's a... There's, talk about. But it doesn't, like, coat the tongue. No. It doesn't have, like... It has a really clean mouthfeel. Um, but there's, like, a syrup touch... That's that's it's not the maltiness so much as well. What is in it? Um, it's noble hopped, okay. noble hops, and it didn't. They didn't. I, didn't I looked for the it. bill on Kent Falls, but those jerks didn't list it. Do you get that? Do you get like a weedy hit in the back of your throat? Not like really. A little bit. I'm getting not like a little bit one, but maybe I'm just my palate's not like attuned enough to place. That I'm getting a little bit of like an orange rind um, to it. I'm getting that, yeah. I mean. From a feeling standpoint, I, this is probably why the first couple sips I just kind of consume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's very clean. Yep. So from a composition standpoint, mm-hmm. it's great. But from a taste standpoint, it's it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's drinkable. It's not something I think I'd regular get, it's but it's not something I'd turn down. But it's a little bit unbalanced. Like I'm not sure I'm enjoying. I'm not sure I'm enjoying it because I'm not sure the flavor is interesting enough for me to kind of you know go back to and say mm, I want another sip of that. Well, Aaron, you know. I can I can see why they call it are considered an imperial because it has very much those imperial notes that that sweetness to it. And they actually say it's not a sweet beer um, sweet. on their site, but it's really sweet to me. I think so too. Yeah, but it finishes not sweet, which is nice. I think like it's a, it's a pleasant beer after the fact. Mm. Those are always interesting. I just don't know when I ever get this. No, if it was this, if it was this and um, a few other more standard issue commercial things on tap, I would 100% drink this. But if I had the option to drink something a little more interesting, you know, you know, one of the the Hanging Hills thing we had a couple weeks ago, or like I would do choose this over the farmhouse 
IPA. With yeah, he's, by the way, we haven't drank that. Oh, we're not even allowed to mention it? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I'm <laughs> saving. That's the beer I'm saving. I'll do the backwards thing. Yeah. Like you better, you better have a nice little sound effect. What are we going to add in zany sound effects? That's got to be a thing, right? Why well, did that one? I've been listening to other podcasts, and they had a ton of zany podcasts. Zany podcasts. Like, the zany podcast. When you say zany, zany sound, sound effects, do you just mean slide whistles? Oh, absolutely. Because that's the only thing I can think slide of. Slide whistles and, like, cows converging <laughs> in a stampede-like well, fashion. When that's we, what I mean by converging. I couldn't think when of When we get stampede. out of the cave, I'm assuming that there might be a field nearby next to all these mountains What's, that maybe there'll be some cows. What kind cows. of assumption is that? I hope so. I hope so, Mario. I recently saw a photo of several horses on a beach looking very sad. Yeah. There's not much to this story, but I was just wondering why they put horses on a beach. And they're looking at the ground like they like there should be grass there, and there wasn't. Well, because they're probably wondering, how did I get here? Yeah. How, why am I on this beach? And there's nobody on me. So, like the, so what am I doing? It's a really heavy existential question. Yeah. But we should stop talking. About any Sweet. of this nonsense. Ruined podcast, Mario. Now I'm just thinking about these horses looking sad on the beach. <laughs> maybe maybe that could be our next A block will be horses. No, we're going to start a band after this called Forlorn Horses. Well, we have four of them, so it'll be a nice wordplay. Yes. I love mm. puns. And all the horses will be named Lorne. Or, no, they'll be members of former SNL. Like, they'll be named after <laughs> former SNL members. All right, so you didn't see anything this week, did you? Um, you nothing movies, worth talking about. I didn't go to the movies. No, uh, it's, it's late August. I don't know when this podcast is going to drop, but it's late August when we're recording. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a dead zone. You start getting films that are worth talking about early September. Well, and you're getting stuff that's hanging on for a while, too. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, The Incredibles is still in a couple, you know, got a couple of screens in certain theaters. and The Meg is going to probably break $150 million domestically, so that can say a lot about what is well, in the cinema. And so in theaters right now, like, that are taking up all the screens, you've got The Meg, you've got Mission Impossible, you've got Crazy Rich Asians. Um, well, it's supposed to be pretty good. I just, yeah, but, but you just, you don't have a lot of space for, for... romantic comedy. You don't have a lot of space for um, other... Like more interesting movies. Yeah, yeah. Black Klansman, which we talked about last week. But yep. uh, and sorry to bother you. Actually, sells a couple screens, around, which yeah. is nice. Um, but we've seen those movies. We mm-hmm. talked about those movies. Well, I still haven't seen Black Klansman, but you'll either. get there. Emery talked about it. Yeah, I just I'm more of a Spike Lee at home guy. There's something about Spike Lee. Every time I see Spike Lee, I kind of want to watch him at home. I don't want to sit in the theater. I kind of like want to watch it. Maybe like pause it, get up, get a drink. Come back, watch it. Well, I think that was one of the things that I said last week is that he's kind of sometimes he can be all over the place, Mm -hmm. and when it's just rushing along at you, and you're just kind. I mean, he's for all of like the intimate things that he does, he's still like an experienced director, so it's still an experience to go see a Spike Lee movie. And if it's all just kind of rushing at you, it can be a lot taken. You want to have that. It's nice to have that extra time that you can kind of sit and puzzle over something or consider something. And to be honest, I've actually never seen a Spike Lee film in theaters. So I will one day have to correct that. I don't know if I'm going to do a black Klansman, but I definitely have to amend that at some point. Mm. Um, But one thing I did want to talk about and just make a really quick conversation about this. I think it's something, especially in consideration of the modern cinema and what's, what's been happening lately in film. Mm -hmm. I was watching, (laughs) <laughs> the 2002 critically acclaimed comedy 40 Days and 40 Nights recently. Mm. Uh, have you ever seen this one? Uh, it's a Josh Hartnett 
Oh, sex I've comedy. seen of the, the Shannon Sossaman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was a big Shannon Sossaman guy as a kid. She was from Reno, Nevada. Yeah, I remember we've had this conversation. We've had, we had this like. conversation quite a bit. I feel like when we first met, you said, like, I was like, I'm hi, from, I'm Mario Bonzo. I'm from Nevada. I'm from Nevada. So was Shannon Sossaman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I was like, her, Taylor Hackford, we got it all. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, no, I was not a fan. I, I'm not a Josh Hartnett guy. Yeah, I think he's okay. Um, I, I don't want to talk about Josh Hartnett just because I don't know. He's just like, he's one of those guys who's fine. I liked him in Halloween H20. That's about all I have to say about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him in Pearl Harbor. But anyways, I was watching 40 Days and 40 Nights. Still a perfectly acceptable comedy. Whatever, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting moment at the end that got me thinking. Um, near the end, Vanessa Shaw's character, who's the ex um girlfriend of josh hartnett's character and josh hartnett's made this pledge that for lent he's going to give up all forms of sex masturbation whatnot Mm -hmm. because he's been like this lothario who just is so preoccupied with sex that he needs to like reset so he's he's not gonna have sex i love 2002 when lotharios can have bull haircuts (laughs) yeah exactly it's my favorite (laughs) and near the end of his 40 days and 40 nights i think it's the last night he's gets basically tied down as like in a stupor because they're trying to his friends are trying to prevent him from breaking uh-huh. um his pledge yeah and vanessa shaw's character comes in and proceeds to rape him i mean there is no like questionability to this it's it's straight up rape mm-hmm. and it's played as a joke yep and this got me thinking about the question of viewer responsibility Looking at 40 Days and 40 Nights through an historical perspective, do viewers have the responsibility to kind of enjoy a film like this when the conversation has turned in such a way that you know that this is fundamentally played as a joke and is absolutely not funny with consideration to where we are as a society? Well, I think the question would be, is there a responsibility to not enjoy this movie? Like, do you have a moral obligation to say no to, and, and somehow let that be known on social media, uh, some kind, like, just watched 40 Days, 40 Nights, you know, there's an irresponsible scene where, you know, Josh Hartman is movie, taken advantage of, and, you know, I'm decrying it, and don't watch 40 Days, and 40 Nights And when Nights this movie anymore. came out, like, there was a big actual critical pushback about that scene. So, like, at the time, it was still considered questionable. Uh-huh. Roger Ebert kind of, like, hand waves in his article. He's like, oh, it's kind of weird that it's okay that's an attractive woman doing this. But this this is just kind, yeah. of, a, kind of an extreme example. Another example, um, kind of an infant example that's used often is Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. That kind of voyeuristic scene where they commit sexual harassment. Yeah. The nerds who are the protagonists by filming the jocks girlfriends, the, the fraternity girlfriends like naked and mm-hmm. and everything. And well, where are, do we need to yeah. not enjoy these films anymore? This is a really interesting question. And it actually, um, we can bring it back to black Klansman a little bit too, because the opening of black Klansman is, um, a shot, a remake of a shot from Gone with the Gone with the Wind, with the yeah, end of Gone with that. the Wind, where you know um, the camera pulls back and it's just a bunch of dead and injured, you know, um, Southern soldiers and, and scarlets running through them looking for somebody and someone, you know, there's a, a voice, um, 
that just kind of comes out of the background that says like the South is dead or or something like that, um, which is followed immediately then after by um, Alec Baldwin pretending to be like a professor of something and making a very racist case about America. Um, but I was reading my much abused copy of Roger Ebert's great movies and um, Gone with the Wind is in that. And it's so this is the first great movies essay. So this is amongst the first collection of movies that he did. And, you know, he says Gone with the Wind for all of its inherent racism and, and kind of how it tries to rewrite history a little bit. It's still a great movie, so we have to appreciate it. And, and that's in the first paragraph. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if we do have to appreciate Gone with the Wind anymore. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I think, I don't, I can't say definitively what the movie is that's taken Gone with the Wind's place, but maybe there doesn't have to be. Maybe we can just let go of stuff like Gone with the Wind and 40 Days and 40 Nights. Not so much because of, because of the things that they include, which our culture no longer values or accepts anymore. And and that's a that's a good question because I wonder too is that okay is it yeah, okay to I, let go of this stuff I think listeners might think we're kind of being hypocrites about this by saying it's okay to let go of these when we have you know Kevin Spacey films for example uh, Roman Polanski's and Macbeth but I, we talked about this off air before we even started this podcast that those films we we enjoy those films and they shaped our view of film we're not necessarily saying that these are movies people should all watch right now but they are we are being earnest when we say that these films are the things that made us yeah. look at film the way they are. So it's a kind of a different part of the conversation. Well, if someone said to us, I'm not going to watch that Roman Polanski movie because of what he did. And I would say, good. Yeah, that's perfectly that, fine. Please don't watch it because of that. You, I, you know, everyone has the right not to watch any movie they don't want to watch if it makes them uncomfortable. And I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, part of the scholarship that's weird about about Roman Polanski's Macbeth is, and we kind of talked about this in the thing is that every single scholarly review talks about, you know, all the Sharon Tate stuff behind it. The other stuff hadn't happened yet, so they didn't mention it, but I'm sure they would have mentioned it. Oh, if absolutely. If it was in the, if, if, you know, they wrote their essay when that happened. And I'm sure if that film had been released exactly in the wake of the, the rape, it would have been buried. That film would well, have been so buried. here's another question and not to interrupt, but, um, Chloe, the New York Times interviewed Chloe Grace Moritz about um, some other movie that she's in, um, and they asked her straight up, do you think that the movie that she made with Louis C.K., um, I Love You, Daddy, should be released? Because I guess Louis C.K. is trying to purchase the rights back from the studio so he can self-release it on his website, or do whatever, or you know, burn it, or do whatever he wants with it. Um, and she flat out said, no, I don't think it should be released. We have to let the culture decide you know, um, to not accept these things. Yeah, exactly. And so by letting him release it and letting him make money off of it or letting him get any kind of notoriety off of it, he gets to dictate the terms of his, um, you know, cultural removal. Um, And I think that's the same thing. Like, is there an... Because it's art and he's an artist, and I'm using air quotes, is there an obligation to look past what he did and to appreciate this as art? And I think the obligation part's the, the thing you're talking about, right? Yeah, I don't think... And, and that's where I exactly would state that there is no obligation to view the film, to, to view those movies. Whether or not there's a right to for these films to be released, I'm 
don't have the authority to say. I don't really feel comfortable enough in my opinion to say. But I do, I am in the position where I would say that a viewer absolutely has the responsibility and the right to define their line. Mm. Um, it's kind of like that Kierkegaardian subjectivity is truth idea where, you know, there's objective facts, but it's like the relations of oneself to those facts, you yes. know, that, that, that levels of existence. And yeah. Motherfuckers. We just talked about Kierkegaard. Mm. Um, there's something else I read uh, from a Deakin university professor talking about like a moral sphere, like where we make judgment calls on individual basis, but do so in relation to like a bigger ethical framework. And I guess that's, that's an example of, you know, in, in the rise of the Me Too movement, the rise of Time's extreme up racism yeah. in film, um, you know, exclusion, like we talked about last week in film and continued exclusion. I, I do think there is an imperative on the viewer to consider the outside frame, to consider the outside world and make the decision whether or not their interest in a film or their particular love for a film outweighs the harm it could have done or the potential correlation. Uh, an example I, big example I have is a movie that's going to be on my list. Mm. American beauty. Yep. Um, mind you typically like I would say, for example, for Glenn, Glary, Glenn Ross, we can kind of remove everything that Kevin Spacey's done and say like, you know, in this film he was great or a movie like seven. Those don't necessarily correlate, but, there was a lot of conversation after the allegations came out about his Oscar speech when he won for American Beauty, where Kevin Spacey said, that's why I love playing Lester, because we got to see all of his worst qualities and we still grew to love him. Mm. And you see a correlation between Lester's obsession with Angela and maybe some of the things that happened with him and the allegations of Anthony Rapp. Yeah. And so there is, that's, a, that's ultimately a question I have is, is this movie 100% is, is American Beauty is, is a pivotal film. Yeah. But in respect to what's happened and what we've seen, do I have now the responsibility to not particularly love that film for what's happened and, and in the relations of what's happened? Example, a movies I have made the decision that I previously liked that I no longer like are something like Tobe Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After I found out that he purposely cut the finger of his actress, made her run through trees, like yeah. tortured her. For the sake of the art. And like that's, I'm like, no, you know what? I somewhat enjoyed Texas Chainsaw when I initially saw it, but then after the fact, I just like, I can't, there, it's not warranted. And American Beauty, a movie that's very pivotal to me that, that I adored when I was younger, yeah. does the allegations and does the, the, the truth of what's happened that he's basically accepted kind of outweigh my enjoyment and, and, and how closely I hold that film to my heart. Not saying that's going to you know, re be removed from my list. Cause I can't, mm -hmm. you can't earnestly unsee it. unsee it. And I can't earnestly say that it did not shape how I see film. Yeah. But now in the present sense, do I still watch it? Do I still well, own I'm gonna, it? I mean, I'm going to talk about one aspect of this next week. Um, when we do our 93s about the idea that you can't unsee, you can't unsee movies and they just are, at some point autobiographically what they are if you're holding on to them in that regard which we both are in regards to american beauty so when i'm watching american beauty i'm not thinking really in terms of kevin spacey at all no. i'm thinking in terms of lester burnham i'm thinking in terms of his movie family is that a moral failing on my part i don't know i'm thinking i mean i've been thinking about that a lot 
recently too as we're doing our movies because there's a bunch of movies on our lists that have oh i feel like we're maybe we're close <laughs> to a street mario <laughs> oh no we can hear a we can hear a siren in our cave um oh, no that that's just the uh that's just the shadows playing tricks on us <laughs> creating our own objective uh, truth someone has to come down and, and show us the way out yeah we're chained we're actually chained by the way too <laughs> um i don't know and i think I feel like I want to now make a very larger allegory of the cave reference to like everything that we're talking about. Um, and I think that's, it's not easy. And this is a conversation that I, and exactly. Cause you could also make the argument that it's not Kevin Spacey's film. <clears throat> Kevin Spacey was a performer in a film that Alan Ball wrote that mm-hmm. Sam Mendes directed that a bunch of other actors came together and, and I'm going to be honest with you, Amazing. Kevin Spacey is the is not the reason that Amer- I love American Beauty. No, same um, for me. He's maybe five, six, seven on my. I haven't thought about it specifically, like where he ranks in the things that make American Beauty great. But yeah, that, we have Spacey we have about a year and a half to really deep um, down think about that. This is something that I've I've been thinking about um, a lot. I think society now, because of the of the intraweb and because of the goddamn social media, um, we are, we now have a kind of access to everyone's morality um, all the time or evidence of everyone's morality all the time. So the baseball players who were at 17 posted a bunch of racist crap on their Twitter are getting run through the ringer now because they're idiots to keep it close to film. James Gunn, James Gunn is another, exactly. Um, we, I think this type of social, cultural morality change used to take a, um, a lot of time. I don't know exactly how much time, but within the span of a generation, that's how long it took for this, these things to change. And, but because everything is done so publicly now, we're asking people to change and make decisions about this stuff right now. Like you, and it's the same thing with Disney firing James Gunn. Like they needed, you know, the right wing people that kind of set him like found that stuff and, and put it out there and, and kind of got the social media, you know, the angry social media mobs to get him fired, demanded that Disney make a decision, a moral distinction on this stuff right now. And I feel like I'm not ready to make that kind of moral distinction. I'm ready to make that moral distinction on some stuff. I can make that moral distinction on, on Louis CK. I loved Louis, maybe still do Louis CK's comedy. Um, but I find it weird now to watch him talk about masturbating in his stand-up. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? It's because I know that that stuff is not a joke. Even if that joke, he didn't do the thing he did in that joke, he's writing a joke about something he did to an actual person um, on some level. And that's where I think I am. In examples where the person in question or the incident in question or the events in question are very tangentially related or not related at all, I think I'm still able mostly to enjoy the media. As is going to be the example in the film we're going to talk about next on my list. When it's directly related or when there is a close relation, or maybe not, no, when it's directly related, I absolutely can say no. Mm -hmm. And that's the example of something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, wait. I think... Nope, that, nope. Someone's coming to get us. The flame has flickered a bit. It's just somebody adjusting adjusting the, the shadow puppets on the wall. Damn it. But when it is 
possibly connected. When you can make the assumptions of a connection, in the example of American Beauty, I, I do have those questions still. It's 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 a matter of shaping what I'm going to do with this, and well, it, I think that is what people need to do. Is just is just more, in my opinion, people just need to be, have better reflection. Yeah, they just this. need to think more. I mean, that's you could say that about anything, like not just about movies, but take you know, let's start with movies and then apply it to every aspect of your life. And, you know, say, have I considered this enough? Have I considered this enough? But I think that, like, a case for me that's perfectly relevant to what we're having a conversation about is I never loved Woody Allen's movies enough to where I ever had to have a question about how far can I distance myself from the all the stuff that he did to, you know, with his stepdaughter. Um and I think that's a, but that's a conversation that people are like just starting to have. Like, well, he was a great filmmaker, but he did all this stuff, maybe. Um, and it took, but I, three decades for people to truly, you know, remove Roman Polanski from the Academy. Well, and he still won. I mean, and and he still won. He for still the won pianist. an Oscar for the pianist. Um, so I feel like Woody Allen's a good, a good case for this because a lot of people wanted to forgive a lot of Woody Allen's transgressions because they thought he made good food. They thought he made good films. Um, I was never one of those people that thought Woody Allen made really good films. So I didn't have a problem holding him accountable for anything that he may or may not have done. And his, yeah, I, n- I never had that connection with Woody Allen. Right. None so I was films, just like, well, I liked two of his movies. If he did it, put him in jail. If he didn't do it, well then he still is only of a, a moderately talented filmmaker who made, a filmmaker who never spoke to me. A couple good movies, right? That I, I don't. That have nothing to do with my life. Um, that apparently a bunch of people really love. Um, I don't. Th- that's an easy one to make for me. Um, you know, the Kevin Spacey thing is a little bit more difficult, only because I mean, he's so far removed from my appreciation of the appreciation of the movies that he's in that we're going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, this kind of relates exactly to um, something that Spike Lee is trying to do in Black Klansman. There's a one, because there's a lot of movie conversation in Black Klansman. So at one point, um, Ron Stallworth is talking to um, Patrice, who's his girlfriend, but also the leader of the Black Student Union. And they're just kind of talking about um, African-American role model figures in films. And they're talking, yeah. so they're talking about Shaft, and they're talking about um, Superfly, and they're talking about, um, the Pam you know, Pam Greer movies. Um and saying, are these people that can be looked up to? And at one point, Ron Stallworth says Shaft or Superfly. And she says, um, I'm going to pick Shaft. I'm not going to pick the pimp um, because of how he depicts. She, she has a problem with how that characterization depicts African-Americans, where they are in, 1970, in the 1970s and where they want to get to. Um, and that these kind of stereotypes are holding them back, that people see all black people as a version of one of these people. Um, they're kicking ass, they're making money, they're taking agency over their lives, but they're doing it in a subversive way. And is that really the thing that we need to be doing? Um, similarly, I mean, Shaft might, his character like Shaft might subvert the rules, but he's tantamount to something like a dirty Harry. Sure. There's a point at the end of the movie where um, Flip, Adam Driver's character, is inducted into the clan, and afterwards the clan all sits back with popcorn and their wives, who were not part of the induction, but come streaming in happily afterwards, they all watch um, Birth, Birth of a Nation. Nation. And at the end of the movie, they are all just up and chanting, white power, white power, white power. And Spike Lee does this really beautiful, 
cross-cutting with the scene where Harry Belafonte, um, who's not playing himself but could be playing himself, is telling a story about um, a lynching that he that he witnessed and that he um, had to hide from. Um, and he, I think, and Spike Lee is kind of juxtaposing this this fantasy that the the clan lives in with the real life terror that is mirrored in Birth of a Nation that people actually lived through. Exactly. Um, but even back then, Birth of a Nation was maligned in many ways. The NAACP stood out against it. Intolerance, which D.W. Griffin does only three years later, was partially in response to how much people did not appreciate Birth of a Nation holding up the Ku sure. Klan. And this is where I think we're still, we're still here. We haven't really even moved very much no. in these things because we still as a culture are willing to say and maybe we should be willing to say it maybe we shouldn't I don't know willing to say what if we're if it's if you can call it art do we have to in some way remove the moral flaws of the artist and um, respect his right to make art um, and I to think express himself. The big question is it then up to the audience, like you posed at the beginning of the thing, to say morally to draw a moral distinction and say yes or no. Um, I think the problem we're running in with this culture is that we tend to want everything to be uniform, so that we want everyone to be morally opposed to something or morally for something. Um, and I'm not sure that that's possible, and I'm not sure that that demand is helping anything. I- I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation, at least from a historical perspective, is that we're dealing with a very divisive world where, Mm. you know, things are a little more intense than they've ever been before. And so we're looking for some sort of uniformity, some sort of moral code, moral standard in somewhere in our lives. And I'm not necessarily sure film is the place to be. I do think at the end of the day, however, there is a responsibility of the viewer you know, the artist can present whatever he's going to present. That's that's what's going to happen. I, I would never believe in limiting the artist's voice insofar as it doesn't cause direct harm to anybody or indirect sure. harm. But I ultimately fall on the side of it is the responsibility of the viewer to make the decision about whether or not they're going to consume that sort of media and then to bear the weight of that decision. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um you know, you can't you can't decide to like Birth of a Nation and really stand for it as a be- great piece of art and then ask why everyone is so upset with you. Well, you would you would hope that you would understand the historical context of its existence. Exactly. And be able to se- if you're going to say yes to Birth of a Nation to be able to say as a piece of art to be able to say to to draw the moral distinction between why it is in actuality, not okay. Yeah, and I think that's morally. Where, I think that's where we fall ultimately. Is is the responsibility comes in? The artist can present what he's going to present. The viewer can watch what he's going to watch and enjoy what he's going to watch. But he better have a goddamn good reason as to why that is. Well, I mean, I look at you know they were playing the new D- Dinesh D'Souza movie at um, the big, huge multiplex where you know in North Haven where we see you know that has the XD screens and plays all non non criminal Dinesh D'Souza by the way. Non-criminal, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent non-criminal. I mean, he was he was unpart- he was um, pardoned. He and was part of me, no was, crime done. Part of me was like, oh, I can't believe they're playing that. Come on! But then, 
I was just like, all right. He made it, and they made a choice to have it, and people are going to have to make a choice to not go see it. I'm not going to go see it. Um, you didn't go see it. No. Um, you know, but that's If up I to, can scrub my mind clean of the Dester Souza, it would be a great day. Not many people went to see that movie. No. Thank no. God. Um, but that's, I think that's what you're saying, is that it's up to the viewer to you know, uphold this, these, these kind of moral standards. And if they watch it, then they have to accept the repercussion of that. They have to accept the fact that there's, you know, going to be people who come out there and say like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So hopefully when we talk about movies that are pretty controversial in the past and the future, we'll at least have good reasons for that. And I think uh, I'm going to have to do that coming up next with my number 94. Cause there's a pretty big example of, moral questionability yes. in that film. All we'll right. be back right after the break. Welcome back. My number 94 is 1988's directed by David Zuckerberg, written by Zuckerberg, his brother Jerry, Mr. Jim Abrams. It is Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. <laughs> And before we get into it, I guess we should talk about the fact the you know the giant elephant in the room, O.J. Simpson, is in this movie. Yeah. And this is 100 an example of, for one thing, he's not in this movie a lot. Um, and it is one where I looked back at it. It's the first time I saw it in years. I saw this movie. I know a good so fifty, long ago. but fifty times as a kid, uh-huh. and I probably haven't watched it in about ten years. Mm-hmm. And so I watched it going like, mm, you know, in consideration of the fact that. I watched it as like a 21, 22-year-old, and now I'm watching it as a 32-year-old. Uh, is, is my view of this going to change? And one thing, he's not in it a lot. Yeah, he's not in he's, it as much as Gets the shit kicked out of him yeah. for his entire runtime, and then he's gone. I just kind of fine. averted my eyes, and I didn't do it on purpose. It just seemed like the thing to do when he was on screen. Um, I don't know. I just, you know... Yeah, it's he did what he did, very obviously, and I don't know. This is, I mean, let's not. And he's go back not into really. This. He's not really good. And, no, he doesn't uh, do anything. I mean, you know, were, everyone else is great. They so. were literally just they put him in here hoping that his, you know, OJ ness would bring some different eyeballs to this movie, and he just kind of OJ'd all over it, and then. He also, they realized the he day. wasn't that good, and no, they just so made they, him be in a bed for. They made him moan an hour. And I think he has minutes. like two lines, like two real lines. Yeah, no. the rest of it is There's just moaning a and pain. Drugged out, yeah. heroin, Frank, heroin line. Yeah, but anyways, this is based upon the 1982 Police Squad ABC sitcom, a show that was critically acclaimed, earned Emmy nominations for writing and for Leslie Nielsen, mm-hmm. but only got six episodes. Um, and I can see why. I watched all six episodes of Police Squad. It's fucking hilarious. It's mm-hmm. just as funny as Naked Gun. But this is something that doesn't work on a small screen. I was reading, listening to another podcast. The second time I'm mentioning this, the Rad Carpet. It's not a bad podcast. Did they Check do a Naked out. Gun episode? Yeah, they're they're doing an entire month on Zucker Abrams and, and mm-hmm. Zucker. They talked about Ghost for 40 minutes, which I'm not sure anybody should do. But they actually did pretty good with it. But they talked about how the fact that, that you know people back then didn't really pay attention to the television televisions were really small and this is police squad was definitely something that required close viewing uh-huh. it's it's it would be an example of like arrested development coming out back then 
Um, when this film came out, Naked Gun, it was made on a very small budget. It was kind of a risk. It was basically just because of the fact that Zucker Abrams and Zucker had made Airplane and Top Secret, and those had been, if not, you know, one was a big success, the other one was a moderate success, a cult success. Um, and this movie just did gangbusters. And there's a good reason why. This movie absolutely shaped seven or maybe even six-year-old Mario's view <laughs> of comedy. Uh-huh. This is, to me, the perfect introduction to comedy. It is wholesome, even when it's telling sex jokes. It was being gross, yeah. It's very forward. It's very on the nose with its humor. But at the same time, it does so cleverly. It It features the best forms of dad jokes where the punchline is seen from a mile away, but it's done in such a way that is entertaining and engaging and zany. Has Roger Ebert concluded in his review, the naked gun is an utterly goofy movie and a lot of fun. And don't let anyone tell you the jokes before you go. And that's the thing. This movie is something that I still quote to this day. I didn't watch it for years, but I still know my favorite parts. Yeah. You know, Which I still is... absolutely love the finale. Um, just to do a quick rundown, you know, Vincent Ludwig played Ricardo Montalban is plotting to kill the queen. Frank Drebin played by Leslie Nielsen trying to stop the plot. Do That's we all you know need. why he's pl- trying to kill the queen? Uh, because of the cabal re- led by uh, Pap Schmier. Right. Who's basically, you get the idea in a roundabout way that they're probably paying him money or giving him some sort of construction contract or drug deal contract in order to just kill the queen. Like, Pap Schmier is actually a running continuity throughout the series, has this, like, arch nemesis of police squad, even mm-hmm. though he's always a man in the shadows. Um, after Ludwig's kill, he falls off the edge of Angel Stadium. Uh, he's run over by a steamroller. He's then marched upon by the Trojan marching band, and Ed, uh, played by George Candy, just great. Cries into Drebin's shoulder and goes, Oh, Christ. That's horrible. That's so horrible. I know, Ed. My father went the same way. You know, still to this day, I haven't watched the movie in 10 years, that, that quote still is one of the best lines in comedy. Well, see, I, and I respond not so much to the quotes, but to, like, the cockeyed looks that everybody gives everybody after they say the goofy thing. Oh, absolutely. So, like, Leslie Nielsen's kind of beat and then kind of suspicious glance over at him is always like that always gets me every time i watch this movie those little weird looks always make me laugh. and there's so much to that too like leslie nielsen i feel was criminally underused after this series yes dracula and dead and loving it's a movie i really enjoy pretty well roasted critically but then he got misused and so many other well, movies they just had to do this over and like over wrongfully and over accused and spy hard and all that fucking garbage and the you know scary movie sequels like some of them are fine but most of them are just garbage mm-hmm. in comparison um but the part that i love is that running gag of drebin running into things uh with his car you know <laughs> and just they're just at first he takes a, a you know airplane trolley airport trolley um runs over a bunch of painters but the thing i love is when he causes the airbags to deploy he fires at the at the car and goes, does anybody get the license plate? And then he has like this second of realization 
of the fact that <laughs> he caused yeah. it to happen. And you know, it's it's that unspoken humor, but it's it's just so brilliantly portrayed. Yeah. And there there's not much to say about why this movie's on my list except for the fact that every comedy I've seen is held up to it. Mm. Is is there's there's a metric between this and another Zucker Abrams Zucker movie I will mention later. I saw that movie later in life, but it's a better movie overall. All of my opinions of comedy are centered in Naked Gun. Mm. There's, it's it's not the best movie put together. It's it's a, it's no. a series of sketches. It's a series of jokes strung together, but those jokes always land it's well, it's I'm, one of those like you get comedies that are rapid fire jokes and half of them don't land for you know for example we talked about hot rod a few weeks ago i love hot rod but a lot of those jokes don't land but naked gun everything lands for me there's a difference and a similarity to stepbrothers i think in the sense that um it completely owns its humor it doesn't try to be it doesn't try to be something it isn't it, mm-hmm. Like this is the this is the comedy. It's very Monty Python in that regard, where it's doing it's hitting its own it's hitting all of its own notes. It exists in its own comedic universe, and it's one where, um, you know, like you said, the punchlines come from a while away. People know things are weird. You know what I mean? There's not this there's not this attempt to frame everything as normal. People know that stuff isn't normal, um, and you know, it, but it's also completely absurd. You know, I mean, my favorite scene is the pillow scene when the doctor throws the <laughs> throws the pillow at Frank, and he like presses it to his face like the pillow's trying to eat him. Oh and yeah, he's exactly. Just like, and he throws it off of him, um, like it really hurt him. I mean, that's just completely ridiculous, and that somehow is even more ridiculous than that doctor then riding on a, you know, blowing up his car because it ran into a gas tank, and then. Riding, riding on it with his, with his stomach and then hitting a missile and then riding the missile with the steering wheel in his hand into a fireworks factory and then Frank going, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. Um, it's so obvious and dumb, but it, they don't play it as dumb. They play it as, as, ser- like, as serious somehow, yeah. which makes it so much more funny. And there's, you know, and that's, I, I think this is the perfect example of this movie is a perfect example of what's been colloquially called as the long joke, mm-hmm. um, which Peter McGraw, who's a human research humor researcher and an author of the humor code says, what ends up happening is that there's this sort of meta thing where you recognize that this is being done purposely as a joke rather than something that's supposed to mirror real life. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too, is, is I love is these long jokes, these, these jokes that continue on. They, they are funny at first. they, stop being funny for a second then they continue to be funny because the movie relishes it relishes the humor like when he kills the fish yeah no exactly it's <laughs> it's such a long joke or the the example of of the the death of the doctor mm-hmm. you know he hits three or four separate things each more ridiculous than the last mm-hmm. um that entire sequence with john you know john houseman's actually his last film the man co-wrote helped write Citizen uh, Kane and ended on Naked Gun. Yeah, that's how you do um, it. But just his explanation to the student driver of extending the middle finger. Sure, like sure. That joke just does not need to take the 20 seconds it takes, but it's made much more hilarious when I mean, it does. The, I mean, I think the, the key long joke of the whole movie is the baseball game. Oh, yeah. Um, where it just moves from, <laughs> you know, from him impersonating Enrico Palazzo to 
you know, the umpire stuff. And it's just in the fact that. Uh, and that's the, paid off in the end when the fan goes, hey, it's Enrico Palazzo. Palazzo. Yeah. And like everyone just starts chanting Enrico Palazzo. Which is, oh, what's that guy's name? Because he's um, Francis. That same guy is Francis in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Mm, right. Yeah, I don't know his name off the top of my head. I didn't write it down. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, even that guy gets a good line. And like, even the movie is great because at the end of the movie in the credits, instead of giving all those people characters, like Baseball Guy 1 or whatever, they just have the quote that he oh, said exactly. in the credit next to that guy's name. And you're like, oh, that guy said it. I know that guy. Plus, yeah, and the zany credits... Like the, the zany credits were, were funny too, and and that's actually another good example of why this film shows up on my list. Is this movie made me look at those things? Mm. You know, as a seven eight year old kid, and I'm like looking at this, going like, "Oh, Foley, is that a joke?" You know, yeah. um, and not really. You know, obviously it's not, but like it it made you pay attention. A lot of films when well, you're young, a lot of films like capture you for their images, for the color, for the general plot contrivances. But this movie makes you pay attention to everything going on. Well, I think it's one of the things I really love about this movie is that um, a lot of the jokes are facial expressions. Oh, yeah. So it's not like a modern comedy where someone's just screaming a joke at you. Um, or it's just you know something inappropriate. They're like, oh, man, I can't believe they said that. Like One of my favorite parts of the movie is when him and Priscilla Presley, um, they're doing the slow motion thing the slow motion run on the beach with their hands held and they and they clothesline that other couple and they they both have Drebin the, and Jane both have this look of just like joy but the, it's joy face. and then the slow motion realization that they're going to hit these people and then it and then they but they're they're still they're still they're enjoying still the yeah, fact yeah. that they're clotheslining um, them it's just and that's you know i think that's one of the reasons why this movie makes sense on a list i think is that there's a there's just so much going on. And there's so many layers of humor. There's wordplay, but then there's like really base jokes. Um, the, you know, the basis joke being everywhere I look, when he's talking about his ex-girlfriend, everywhere I look I'm reminded of her, and it shows the nuclear reactor that's obviously supposed to represent yeah. a pair of breasts. But then you have like the other clever jokes that, that are wordplay or jokes that, that take a long time to pay off. Um, I mean, it just, I and mean, it just has so much going on. I even like the jokes that aren't jokes. Like when he discovers um, Priscilla Presley's character, what's... Uh, Jane. Uh, Jane, in his apartment, cooking dinner. And she's like, I boiled you a roast. How hot and wet do you like it? And he just says, very hot and very wet. What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's just the exact thing that she just said. That's not a joke. But... Coming out of Leslie and Nielsen's also, mouth. Also, I mean, it's supposed to be played, like, sexually. Right, but it's not. Because she's actually boiling a roast. She just showed yeah. it to him. Which is also another great joke. She's boiling a roast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he does all the flips and stuff to, you know, to oh, get yeah. into the thing. But, it's, um, yeah, there, there's, like, a weird, there's a weird subtlety to this movie. That if you're not paying attention, you could kind of miss it. Like, I, you know, we talked about the pistachio scene where him and George are sitting in the car before he goes into Ludwig's apartment and they're eating, they're furiously <laughs> eating pistachios for no particular reason yeah. and throwing the shells out the, the window and their lips and fingers are all red. Um, and then he gets out of the car and there's just a big pile of pistachio shells that doesn't need to be there. Everything they said is technically a plot point. So it's a conversation that they're putting in there to move the plot along. But within that, they put this weird, <laughs> they put this weird pistachio scene 
And I, when I was watching it, I was trying to remember, like, oh, were pistachios, like, red pistachios really big in 1988? Yeah. Like, is this why this is in here? I don't know. Um, but I'm glad it is, because it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, and there's, there's so many, like, talk about the wordplay jokes. It's like so many things I, I see now that I didn't see back then. Um, there's that part where he, he's mentioning his love to Jane, like, when she's kind of under the spell of Ludwig's mind control plan. Uh-huh. And she says, like, wait, you know, Jane, since I met you, I noticed things that I never knew were there before. Birds singing. Dew glistening on a newly formed leaf. Stoplights. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such like a sudden joke that the, that's there that's like so underlined with this zaniness and this goofiness and this like very on-the-nose humor. But it's, it's hilarious that this movie always requires second and third and fourth viewings because mm-hmm. there's something... There's always something, seen. yeah, yeah, yeah. can really dig in. And so just to summarize, really, it's I, I think this is nearly a perfect comedy. Um, there, there's comedies that are higher on my list, but this is the movie that set the tone for wide sea and humor. And this is probably the very first movie I'd suggest everybody who listens to see. I don't think there's a single person who can't get something out of this. You know, don't go into it expecting a lot in terms of plot or in terms of direction. It's it's very br- like blunt when it comes to that. But oh yeah, it is absolutely hilarious. And this is you know the first movie I can say you will get something from it. Well, and even if- and watch all Police Squad. All six episodes are great. They're all on YouTube. Are they? Naked Gun two and a half also hilarious. There's some jokes from this that I thought were from this movie that were actually from Naked Gun two and a half. Naked Gun 3 or 3 and a 3rd, you can uh, take it or leave it. Fuck you, Peter Siegel. Get out of my movie. <laughs> he directed the third one. Okay. He didn't direct the first, yeah. All right. But, uh, yeah, I think that's that's all there is needs to be said about Naked Gun. Go fucking see it. And then, yeah, and then quote, it, quote it to somebody. Yeah. All right. And spread it. Make it like a, what are those things called? Those those chain letters? Are we still doing those in 2018? Sure, yeah, they mail, they mail. Viral? They mail them to people. Make, a, make an eminently popular movie more viral. Well, I think you would do that, and people would be like, yeah, I've seen this movie. Yeah, I've seen What the fuck are you doing, dude? It's hilarious. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with, uh, unfortunately, Tom's number 94. <laughs> Shut up, Mario. <laughs> Welcome back. My number 94 movie is The Accidental Tourist. Also released in 1988, same as The Naked Gun. Suspicious. Yeah, very. Uh, directed by Lawrence Kasdan. Um, He's a man who, who wrote things and directed things. Well, it's weird. So, you know, we actually had this conversation. Like, oh, did he do anything besides Return of the Jedi and Raiders? And he I mean, directed, he wrote a lot of things and directed a lot of things. A lot of I mean, things. he directed Body Heat and Big Chill and Mumford, which is a 1999 movie that I really like. Um, he also directed... Dreamcatcher, oh yeah, which is I actually the worst movie I've. I literally hands had, down the worst movie I've ever seen. I had one movie listed for Lawrence Kasdan that he directed, and it was just it was just a line in my notes pointing up and Dreamcatcher. We're gonna have to do a separate A block one day of the worst movies we've ever seen. That and the one we talk the word, about will be Dreamcatcher. That used the word shit weasel way too often. How do you have a movie with Timothy Oliphant and Thomas Jane and waste it's it? It's just terrible. But let's talk about your movie. Okay, um, so the accidental tourist. Uh, is an adaptation um, from a book, a 1985 novel by Ann Tyler. 
Um, this is a fairly. Did you read that book? By I way? did. Okay. Um, and that's kind of part of that's part of the conversation here. Um, I did not. It's a fairly close adaptation, um, perhaps too close of an adaptation. Um, just a little backstory. Now I'll do what the movie's about first. So uh, William Hurt plays Macon Leary. He um, is a travel book writer. He writes uh, travel guides for men. It's 88, so we're saying men. Um, for business people um, to go on business trips and feel like they haven't left home. So they where they can find you know, meals in Europe that are traditionally American, how they can feel like they're still in America somehow. Um, he's married to Sarah. She's played by Kathleen Turner. When the movie starts, their son, their 12-year-old son, Ethan, has been dead for a year. He was shot during a robbery at a, at a burger, a do hamburger we, place. Do we think Ethan and River Phoenix's character in Stand By Me were killed in the same robbery? Yep. I'm going to... We do. Fucking extended universe. We're gonna write an essay about that when yeah. we get that when we get the essay things up. We're gonna we're gonna try to find a way to mash those together. Okay, great. Um, Sarah leaves Macon. William Hurt. Um, Macon is uh, the fourth one of four siblings who live this very regimented, odd, eccentric, um, closed-in, um, rule-regulated life. Um, which makes him kind of standoffish and non-emotional. Um, eventually, he ends up living with his his sister and his two brothers because he breaks his leg. Um, he has a dog that was his son's dog. The dog is getting out of control. He hires Muriel, played by Gina Davis, who uh, won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for this role, inexplicably. Uh, to yeah. train the dog inexplicably she is a oddball eccentric fairly like a stereotype are you sure she's an oddball i don't think this movie does that enough yeah no um no they don't they definitely don't sell her oddballness ever um she brings out his his human side she has a son who's very sick um he gets attached to the son he tries to go back to his wife. He realizes that he requires Muriel's quirkiness to feel alive. Uh, and the movie ends on a William Hurt smile. Which is the creepiest fucking thing ever. I do not ever want to see William Hurt smile again. I had the exact same thought. William Hurt should be always moody, always gloomy. I'm sorry, William Hurt. If you're happy in your real life, also apparently he's a real asshole, but we're not talking about that every time. Uh, <laughs> Never smile, William Hurt. Yeah, it was. It's an awkward. It's a very. That's my director's. It's note a very awkward you. ending. Um, we'll get into the movie as a movie in a little bit. Oh, we'll get into that. I want to yeah. hear. I want to hear. I think there's a story with this. This is a story. I love stories. This is a big story. I'm gonna sit back. Okay. I might even turn off my mic here for a second. I'm gonna turn off my mic. He's turning off his mic. It actually sounds different. Like there's less sound somehow. You should maybe turn. It your- does. Okay. It does. So um, the story with this movie is that in when I was a junior in high school, I took a class called film. So that was 1999. Um, I took a class, 98, 99. I took a class called Film as Literature. And we watched five movies, and this was the first one. Um, this and the other movie that we watched 
another movie that watched Ordinary People, which is a terrible movie and a terrible book and just the worst. Um, we kind of looked at it from an adaptation standpoint. How do you translate a novel to the screen? So we started with reading the book and kind of talking about general film things. And then we watched the movie over a couple of periods and kind of, you know, compared and contrast how you got to here. And um, we also, we watched, um, there's two other movies that are on my list that we watched during that class. Um, one of them we're going to talk about very soon. One of them we're not going to talk about for a long time. Um, the other one, the fifth one, uh, Mario is going to talk about much later on his list. Um, but it was the first time I considered film to be anything other than um, like a simple entertainment or just something to laugh at or something to be excited by or something to enjoy. The idea that you could could read a film like a book. Um, and this was brought to bear on me much more profoundly later in the class. Um, but this is the first one. And because it really kind of opened my eyes to doing that, I've always felt very attached to this movie. Um, the other movies um, that we've talked about on my list so far um, don't have that autobiographical component. They're much more pleasure-based um, there's a simple pleasure gained from each of those movies, even a, a really complicated movie like Clean Shaven. Um, because I came to it so late in life, um, there's just a pleasure of watching a simple movie or, or a movie do everything well, or a, a, a DIY against all odds movie. After you've, I've already seen a, a, you know, a lot of movies and like dissected the shit out of all those movies. Um, so this is going to be, on my list, this is where the autobiographical stuff starts and where I can talk directly to how this kind of affected my viewing of movies. This movie would be much higher. From a, the, from a sheer autobiographical standpoint, this is a very important movie to me. It would be a much higher movie if it was a better movie. It's, I'm back. <laughs> because this is the best time for me to pop up. This movie fucking sucks. Mm. Oh my god! It's, it's and I no, I appreciate. I, I want to yeah. say this right now. I appreciate the autobiographical perspective of that. Sure, sure, sure. There is a lot of movies that I think I curated my list uh, really heavily when I first did it. Um, that's where the big difference is in our list is going to come in. Is I curated my list, and we talked about this in a previous A block a few weeks ago, where we talked about the films that really shaped how we see movies, but we considered not good enough to be on our lists or that weren't on our list for some reason. And a lot of those movies that appeared on my list and a lot of other movies that maybe were, uh, cause I really talked about, I did 150 films. Mm-hmm. Didn't show up. Cause I definitely curated the fact of like, do I consider this at least a good movie? Yeah. And I don't know. I didn't. So necessarily I, how you felt about this from the get go. Yeah. I did it a little differently. I really kind of tried to track, um, and I, you know, I could tell a little bit of a story here. I have a little bit of experience with, with thinking in this regard. Um, I tried to track, um, and like a narrative thing. So to move from like the simple pleasure movies to movies that do a specific thing, um, to movies that kind of um, I appreciate on a visceral standpoint, to movies that are are movies I can think about a lot, or there's a lot to dissect in them or that have really altered the way that I look at movies to movies that I respond to, you know, just from a love perspective, from a heart perspective to then like my top 40 movies, which, you know, shape your life, basically. which exactly, which shape my personality and shape my values and shape everything. 
Um, so I couldn't leave because this movie is so important to all of those other things. I couldn't leave it off. So you, even you though it's old, not, you as were how old again when you saw this? Seventeen. You were seventeen. How did seventeen-year-old Thomas Nolan? Seventeen-year-old Thomas to Nolan has a film. Yeah, he thought it was a good movie. Okay, because I hadn't ever considered movie from the perspective oh, that my teacher was asking me to consider movies from. Um, and then seventeen-year-old Mario thought Screen Three was also a decent film. So right. We're... Well, so I mean, right after this, I think right after this movie, I saw this movie. I saw Fight Club, and then Fight Club dominated my life for a large portion of time. And then after that, it was American Beauty. And then after that, Almost Famous. And all of those movies have a real... Um, those are much higher on my list. They're all on my list. Um, and they have... A, but they derive from having seen this movie. This movie gave... Seeing this movie and analyzing this movie, um, even though we didn't analyze all of its flaws because I think the teacher really liked it, um, gave me a language through which I could view... Um, future movies and analyze future movies and then in, ingratiate those movies more fully into who I am as a person. Um, but it, I mean, for better or worse, it fucking starts with this stupid movie where the only thing, having watched it a couple days ago to redo this thing, it was the first time I'd watched it in all those years. Um, and you watched it with your wife, correct? Yeah, and she didn't. She felt much the same way that you did, and I feel much the same way that you did too. I mean, I the only thing I really pull out of this movie that I like is is um, I think William Hurt's performance is is really good. Um, I think he does confused and lost um, and mildly broken pretty well. I think the script gets in the way of um, of of him really expressing how those things. I don't would affect necessarily him. agree that the script is the problem. Well, so I'm going from the perspective of the script tries to leave in a lot of book stuff without giving you the context of the book. Oh, it's definitely something so, that could have been edited so if they by had, a not even, wide margin. But like not even edited. Uh, this is the thing where I would say um, a true, a better adaptation of the book would have taken the themes of the book and translated them into a movie into, into a better screenplay. This one just tried to take as much of the book out of it as humanly possible and just jam it into a movie at whatever cost. Um, so there's a part like at, towards the end of the movie where Muriel has snuck onto a plane to join Macon in Paris. And she's having a conversation with him about what she's doing with her son because Macon's indignant that she would leave her son who's sickly and that he's grown so attached to with strangers while she's in Paris. And she starts having this conversation, name-dropping all of these people who we haven't heard of or met or have any context for. And we're just supposed to be like, oh. Are those people featured in the book? They're people that are, have, are all major characters in the book. <laughs> but they didn't do, like Lawrence Kasdan didn't do any work to try to translate any of that stuff into the movie. He just left it in. Just a kind of blank, you know. I'm sure they, you know, he just maybe assumed that everyone read this book and will just be like, oh, they mentioned her. Oh, her. Okay, good. You're, um, you're saying Lawrence Kasdan is known for putting unimportant subplots into his film and leaving them in. No, definitely I mean, I, not. I think, that, I think that might be a, a bit of a rude statement to make of <laughs> Sir Lawrence Kasdan. Is he a sir? Oh, God, I hope not. Um, but that's there should be a God I hope not count. By the way, I say that quite often. God I hope not. I said oh dear quite frequently. Yeah. Um, but that's that's one of the many problems that this book has. They don't give you the 
I don't think the movie. The gives book or the, the film. The film. I don't think the movie gives you the correct context for how insular and isolated and eccentric his family is. Um, I think you're just kind of supposed to accept that face value that these people are, are weird from a from a, a few um, examples where in the book it's a very it's a very fleshed out developed purposely purposefully reasoned um isolation so wait is the weirdness this is a major problem i had with this film is the weirdness of the family better explained in the novel yes times a million because i seriously felt like i was watching a john pierre you know film when i saw the family scene <laughs> and my major issue with this is there's a lot of interesting things going on yeah a lot of very bordering on surrealist there's things that should be way and, more interesting and yeah exactly like the cataloging the food alphabetically the conversation about rose's uncooked turkey yep all of this is is stuff that feels like it's would be in a better film by a better filmmaker mm-hmm. but lawrence kasdan presents everything so on the nose that it becomes unwarranted and unearned and well, I mean, to, for example, like like talking about Mariel, who I, Gina Davis, I think is fucking garbage in this movie. I don't. No, I, I'll take that back. I, I'll, I'm going to step back on that. Gina Davis is told to be fucking garbage in this movie by a bad director. Gina well, Davis, I, I've seen. You know, like Thelma and Louise. She's, she's when she is directed by somebody who knows what he's doing. Even like or a league, she's doing. Like, even like a league of their own. Exactly. Yeah. She can do work. And she's yeah. she's a good leading leading man, leading woman, or leading person. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> our initial conversation is ruining this episode. But um well like, that's, I mean Paul Roger Ebert said like Davis brings an unforced wackiness and that is bulldog utter bullshit. Well that's the funny thing, is that like because Pauline Kale kind of disagrees oh, with her. Uh, and, <laughs> Pauline Kale. and Pauline Kale purposely thinks that they cast her purposely against type. Like they cast, but they didn't seem to realize that they had cast her. So they cast what she calls um, a beauty queen, a six foot beauty, cast against her looks. Well, Pauline Kale was pretty caught up on the height issue for some reason. Like she talks about well, she's just, how uh, Dustin she's, Hoffman should have had uh, William Hurt's role, the Macon role. Like it felt like it was a Dustin Hoffman performance. It's like a weird thing yeah. for her to get into. Well, I mean, I, I would remember that. Remember that two thousands. Early two thousands movie, the Freddie Prince Jr. Rachel Lee Cook movie. She's all that. Oh, do I remember that? And how she's in in um, not another teen movie. They parody it by Chris Evans being like, "Oh, she's got glasses and a ponytail," yeah, yeah. and that's the same thing that's happening here. No, she's weird. But I look think, how weird she is. I don't think that's it. I think the thing that makes her so weird and forced in her weirdness is just the introductory scene in the animal hospital. Where she's really aggressively forward for no warranted reason, and I don't want to make this. And one it's th- not so much the right. fact that she doesn't have the agency to do that, but it just doesn't make well, sense. Some- There's nothing in the real world that would do this, and this movie is just exists in this weird, hyper right. surrealist world. But it is presented so straightforward. So I'll have this, so I have uh, several things to say about that. Um, one is that in the book, and I don't want to make this into a thing. 
a conversation. We're not going to do this for every movie that used to be a book. We're not going to say but the that, movie is better I than the book. I think this blah, warrants blah, blah, blah. it. This warrants it because this feels like a movie that wanted to so closely follow the book. Right. And I'm saying this as somebody who didn't read the book, but from your conversation is the fact that it's so closely wanted to follow it that extracted scenes. But completely disregard scenes that would explain why the fuck right. this exists so in the movie. in the book, Macon and his brothers and I'm sisters... getting real angry. Get angry, yeah. That's why we have this. Macon, Macon his siblings' mother... Um, so their father their father is killed, I think, in Korea, if I remember correctly. None of this is mentioned in the movie, right? None of this is mentioned in the movie. Yeah. Their mother is actually a lot like Muriel. She's flighty... She, you know, flies by the seat of her pants. She makes a lot of weird decisions. She's, you know, looks out. Um, she has this kind of nascent selfish streak where she seems like she's doing everything for herself. Um, that is married to the idea that in the book, she, Muriel, is actively looking for a husband. So when she, and she thinks that she may have had a husband a couple of times and she's lost him because of, you know, X, Y, and Z things. They bring up a lot of her teenage sexuality issues that she might be, um, and the relationship between her parents that she might be um, trying to exercise by by having all these relationships with these different men. And so the early scenes in the pet store have more context because she sees a single man and she actively is trying to say, how can I get this man in my life? But I'll say another thing... Which is a problem because this movie... 100% 100% makes everything about Macon, who's just not an enjoyable character. And I assume in the book, he's also a miserable fuck. Yeah. But in this, he's, he's such a, a miserable fuck with no redeeming characteristics. And was he... Well, that's like, so- looking at looking at the excerpts from Accidental Taurus, the, the book he's written in, in the, the movie, yep. he sounds like even before Ethan's death, he was a miserable Well, bastard. that's what he was supposed to be. So that's one of the things that Pauline Kael mentions in her review is like, why are these people even together? Yeah, no, doesn't exactly. make why? any sense. Was he like this the whole time? And if he was, and she was so, she was so out there, and she was so you know um, spontaneous and outgoing. Why was she with this guy? Doesn't make any sense. Uh, the, so the other thing, I mean, point I'll make in regards to this is this seems like something that you know we both listen to the used to listen to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast a lot. He used to, and he made in one of uh, not the most recent episodes because I haven't listened to any of those. But when he first started, they became fucking. Yeah, but when he first started doing it again, he was kind of talking about the superhero movies and the idea of like an information dump. And one of the reasons he doesn't like superhero movies is because the directors and the screen pl- and the screenwriters try to just jam as much information into these movies as he can. And it's the same thing with like a Harry Potter movie or um, you know one of these movies that has um, a pre-existing you know story like a, the star you know a Star Wars movie. Um, where they're trying to just jam as much of this backstory in as possible to make the fans, like the super fans, happy. Because they want to see as much of their novel represented on screen as they possibly can. And I feel like some of that happened here in the sense that they wanted to see... uh, Kazdan wanted to see a bunch of this stuff played on screen. So Kazdan is just a huge fan of the novel. Right. But he didn't... And Pauline Kael makes a mention of that too, that he can... She can imagine... Lawrence Kasdan reading this novel and saying like, "Hey, I can. That's got me written all over it. This is a me movie." But he, which, left, I, don't, which I don't get. But he left out all the wrong stuff. He left out literally all the context for everything that happens in this movie. Um, and again, I'll just go back to the the autobiography for a second. It's a bad movie. 
But it's on my list because watching this bad movie as a kid gave me the tools to recognize as a 36-year-old why this is a bad movie. Yeah, and you like which the first thought, which is fair. Which like, I think is a, you could see the translation from the page to the screen. And now you can view it as a terrible what page even, to I remember as, adaptation. I remember because when we read it, we read it. Um, he gave us paperback copies. I don't know why he had so many copies of this book. I guess he had taught this class before, but I thought he was a new teacher. Are you sure he, he wasn't married to? Could have been a ghost. Could have been There's a ghost. Many um, or he could have been the guy trying to lead me out of the cave, and I just yeah, I, no. I was saying maybe he was married to the author. <laughs> oh, maybe. I don't think. I don't think he was there. Her royalties were really um, running dry. He's like, shit. I tell these kids we can watch accidental. So tourists. the paperback in the book, they mention the idea that the so in the movie the covers are all different colors and they say a bunch of words on it. In the book, it mentions the fact that they would they were red with like a gold logo on it. And the paperback copy of the book was red with the gold logo on it. And I even was kind of into the idea of like the synergy between the book and the outside of the book and then the movie and how all this stuff kind of yeah, like we correlated talked about together. Previously, a few weeks ago, the visual, you know, film and whatnot and novels in comparison being like written visualization of a world and compared to sound and image. Well, I think that's what I got caught up in as a 17-year-old who hadn't experienced any of this stuff before was the idea that I was inside a universe. It's only now that I realized that the universe that I was inside is a very flawed a very flawed universe. So in this class, you would read the book first and then watch the film? I so that's, it was just for this and Ordinary People. But for everything else, in the other three movies that are on our list collectively, we did kind of a shot-by-shot you know, or scene-by-scene scene analysis of, of how the movies worked. But I think the benefit of, or I think what he was suggesting, the benefit of starting with a book and then um, looking at the, the movie adaptation of the book was that you could pick out a scene of the book and read it and say, this is how, it trans- this is how the director translated this on screen. He made this choice, the actor made this choice, uh, the cinematographer did this, the camera angle is this, what is this suggesting? Um, why is this here? What is, you know, the score of this? I mean, the score of this movie is fucking atrocious. It's another John Williams disaster. Um, <laughs> that mid-80s John Williams. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I, I, The non-Spielberg Williams. No. Um, and so through this kind of really meticulous dissection of these movies, we're able to... You, you basically, the idea is you could shape the image of the world through reading it and then see how it was created by one man and a group of people together. Right. And how that compared to your image well, think, of what was done versus an image of somebody completely outside. And so I think the point of the class was more about analyzing film and he was just using the book as a... As, as a catalyst. As, yeah. Um, again, I wish he... There's lots of movies that were books first. Um I wish Silence of the Lambs would have been a great example. Wish he had picked one of those, um, but I can't fault I, I can't fault him for giving me the ability to make like a list like this. Um, and so, it's you know. That being said, you haven't watched this movie since high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you watched this this past week. Your wife asked whose list it was on. <laughs> you said yours, yep. I believe. And her response was, why? Why? So, has a 36-year-old oh, Tom Nolan. Well, I just said, 
I'm not. I actually, I'm perfectly comfortable with this on my list. I understand that it's not a great movie, but, but I want to see like how the. I kind of want to talk about how like it's changed, like how the movie has changed. You no, know, how how your your view of it's changed in. You saw it as a good movie back then. What, in your viewing of film over the next decade and a half, almost two decades, has made you reshape? Well, just consider. I mean, consider from. Consider a moment in your life where you had a kind of like aha moment. You know what I mean? Where uh, you know something came to some a bunch of circumstances or a bunch of things came and clicked together, and you were just like, "Huh, okay, I get, I get how that works." Because through viewing this movie, when I viewed it, it allowed me to kind of go back and think about lots of the other movies that I had seen and thought more deeply about how they worked. Not as things that made me laugh or things that made me smile or made me angry or thrilled me, but how they worked as as pieces of art, um, or even like on a mechanical level. Oh, sure. And I was, I think I was, I was several movies away from understanding like the mechanical level of anything. That's a movie that we did in this class that is going to show up much, much later on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but like even seeing it now. Where I thought it was a good movie because I thought it was it was something I hadn't seen before. Um, I don't think I had a lot of William Hurt experience at seventeen. Um, you know, there was not a lot of Children of a Lesser God. No, I had wings in your. I hadn't your seen middle Children school of years. A Lesser God. Yeah, um, you know, I Kiss of a Spider Woman was. They didn't show. I didn't show. Not I wasn't shown Body Heat. You know, early when I was, you know, watching. Uh, the Great Muppet Caper. Had you seen Lost in Space? Or Follow That Bird? Had you seen Lost in Space? But Lost in Space would have just been getting released in theaters. Um, I didn't. So I, I didn't have. I hadn't seen this movie before. Like, not even this movie, but a movie like this. Mm. Um, so you just had. You know, it was something new to consider. It was a new lens, a new perspective through which to consider things. You know, a thing that was a huge part of my life, like watching movies was a huge part of my existence. I'd seen, by the time I saw this, a ton of fucking movies as a kid. Um, but I never considered any of them beyond like, that's good. But all of them that's have been not good. just enjoyment. That's you. pretty good. You know, yeah, exactly. Nothing, nothing deeper than my initial emotional response to whatever I just watched. I mean, and that's, that's the thing about film. A lot of people late in life for perfectly justifiable reasons, the film has something they watch for enjoyment, something that is nothing they want to think about, nothing they want to consider. And that's why we always pause to say a movie's garbage. Even though we may think a movie's garbage, we still pause to say a movie's garbage without warranted reason because we can accept the fact that entertaining movies are entertaining movies. Well, and that, I mean, that's, and, Pauline Kael makes a point of that in her review where she says that... And she loved this movie, right? No, she, she did didn't. not find it hell to sit through. She says, "I found Tourist hell to sit through, but it has an audience appeal. It provides a new romantic myth of the '80s." Um, so even in her like disdainful review of this movie, she was able to acknowledge, like, I get why someone would like this movie. I don't get why it was nominated for any Oscars. Nominated for best best picture picture. You know, it wasn't nominated for best picture that year. Dead Ringers, or Last Temptation of Christ, Die Hard, not the nominated. Thin Blue Line, not not nominated. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No. Rain Man won that year, folks. 
Rain Man. And you know what? Rain Man, we can have, me and you both despise Rain Man. Yep. But I think we can both accept why maybe it would be there. I'm going to be honest with you. I can't. Really? I'm really not sure what anybody ever saw in that movie ever. I think it's too... It's Tom a good Cru- performance. It's Tom Cruise at the height of his popularity. But he's bad in it. He's bad in it, but he's coming two years off of Top Gun. Oh, so? Oh, top, people love Top Gun. You know, he's a few years past, a few years earlier, didn't risky business. So you have a very popular leading man. It'd be like if Chris Pratt and Daniel Day Lewis made a movie. Is together. that that's not what this is like? <laughs> no, I don't know. I It'd be like if stretch. Chris Pratt played the Tom Cruise part and Jamie Renner. Played the Dustin Hoffman. I, part. I think I think Dustin Hoffman a little. Dustin Hoffman's coming off of Chris Pratt and Jeffrey Rush. Nah, because I think Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman were peers. Well, like Pauline Kael mentions this in a review with you know comparing Kramer versus Kramer to Accidental Tourist. And I think Dustin Hoffman had some clout at this time coming off of something like Kramer versus Kramer. I agree with you, but I don't think that means that he's any good in this, or I mean in Rain Man. No, um, he was he was not an accidental tourist. No, could you imagine? I mean, Pauline Kael really wanted him to be an well, accidental tourist. I mean, so that's I mean, uh, that brings us if we want to bring it back. But I think Pauline, I think I, we should we should really talk, and especially talking about Pauline Kael, we should talk about the movie as we see it now, and like the flaws, and like because I think there's something good in there. There's an underlying... And that's what makes me mad, is there's something good in there. There's a very strong underlying movie that isn't totally beholden to 80s like mentalities or 80s thinking or 80s lifestyles or whatever. Um, there's and a, all the negative reviews I read for it was like, this is a very 80s movie, and I don't think it needs to be. There's a fairly good um, movie about depression in, embedded in this thing. Mm. Um, I think the problem, I'm going to be honest with you. I think the problem with the movie, uh, with this movie is that it is, even though it leaves out all the context, it's too beholden to the novel because in reality, they should have adapted Muriel's character to be less of a horrible, eccentric movie, nut job cliche and more of someone that has legitimate problems and that those problems aren't solved by thrift store clothing and being a weirdo, but are by kind of. You know that she's pulled her. She's held herself to her. She's held her life together for so long, but in in the eighties, apparently you can't be poor and living on the wrong side of the tracks, but also white without being kind of a lunatic. And see, you know what I mean? No, I there's too much pigeonholing and of 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 the socioeconomic classes here. That's my main problem with this film. My main problem with this film is Lawrence Kasdan at most should have had a story by credit. Lawrence Kasdan is not talented. Can I say this right? Yeah, now. I mean we're <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Oh, whatever, it's fine. Empire Strikes Back is good. Uh, he hasn't done a lot of great work in modern days. I like Force Awakens. Solo but notoriously he, has flaws, but but my problem with this is he's so on the nose, and he's he's great at creating a popcorn action movie and a movie that doesn't require a lot of its audience. But I think this movie should have demanded more. And Hurt is doing this minimalist characteristic, this this very minimalist reserved well, sort see. of role, and then he's like facing against Gina Davis, and Kasdan tells Davis to be so quirky, and it creates this really irritating. I mean, radiant. you could see evidence of you could see evidence of 
William Hurt's performance in something like, and I'm not really equating them, but in something like um, Casey Affleck's Manchester by the Sea performance. Mm. You know what I mean? Where it's just, he's so insular, and he, but Kenneth Lonergan gives Casey Affleck's character permission to feel that way. And this is my problem. Like, and he doesn't try to dig him out of it with a, like a, like a hipster weirdo shovel. And this is my thing. For example, mentioning Manchester by the Sea is if Kenneth Lonergan was the quality of director as Lawrence Kasdan, when Casey Affleck's character is sitting there after having the conversation in the police station about why he isn't being arrested mm-hmm. and then grabbing the gun, he would have had a flashback to like Casey Affleck being like, well, all my children are burned. And this is a big thing that bugs me. There is a scene where they talk about his brother, um, played by David Ogg Styles. Mm-hmm. David Ogden Styles. Um, Porter. I think. Porter. Yeah. Says, you know, like, why don't you get rid of that dog? And William Hurt sells why he's not getting rid of the dog. But and then they have to do know, flashback. You know why he's not getting rid yeah. of the dog because fucking Ethan. It's Ethan's dog. Any viewer of that film's like, oh, it's fucking the kid's dog. Yeah. That dog is. Fairly old. The dog's acting up because the son's dead. I mean, that's on the nose. Movie? But then they flash back they have a flashback, yeah. to the kid playing with the dog. Not once, but twice. Two scenes of different playing with the dog. And it's like, yeah, Lawrence Kasdan, we fucking know. And they go back. That's his fucking dog. But then they go back to him. And he's that's like, why he's sad. Oh, I just can't. And then they're all looking at him like, hmm. Yeah. Just, you know hmm. what? Trust your actor. Trust the man who has won an Oscar who's been nominated at this point three, three times, times yeah. to sell, He's gonna sell why yeah. it can't happen. What are they g- and there's so much of this in this film. Mm, there's so <laughs> much like great surrealist moments that like don't need to be explained. The there, There's quirks to this that I think like something like a Jean-Pierre Genoux, and this is what, I don't know why I keep relating this to that kind of director, but like this kind of weird quirkiness would have worked in a movie like this. Mm-hmm. That would have created a gradient where you go from William Hurt's very grounded, nuanced misery, which I don't, I, I still think isn't, isn't his best, to Gina Davis's like Muriel's goofiness and quirkiness and like neediness. Um, and she, he, I think Kazdan, the only good thing he does is like he gives her some agency when you know Macon talks about like her son, and like that's the only time she stands her ground. But I think a better director would have been able to take the quirkiness of that family with alphabetizing the food or that concentration. Like there's these lingering shots of them with baked potatoes, like mixing with the sour cream. Well, in the novel, like they're obsessed with baked potatoes. They yeah. have to eat a baked potato every meal. And that's fine. You know, yeah, fuck yeah. it. You can, you can excise all that. A better director would have taken out all the goofiness, not all the goofy, all the quirkiness. From the mother's character, you don't need that, mm-hmm. but brought it into the family and been like, oh, he has a quirky family, and so he has some relation to his quirkiness. Like, yeah, he, he badmouths them. He badmouths Rose's relationship with Julian. He, he doesn't feel like he's a compatriot of them, but William Hurt is a good enough actor to sell the fact that he's looking for that. He's looking for some connection. And a better director would be like, here's a quirky, weird situation. This is the world he's in. And he's attracted to that. And that's why he goes for somebody like Mariel, who you know, captures that innocence, that. who captures outside of it, but captures that innocence, that, that innocence that's lost from his son's death, and excuse something like Sarah, who is more of a him, another 
at least, at least initially, Sarah very much kind of reflects his sort of flightiness and already kind of self-established well, she, depression. Yeah, she represents a kind of... Uh, oh, I'm so mad about this movie. <laughs> but I think, I mean, consider consider your history, your own of history. violence. With, with, yeah, consider your history of violence. We will, we will be, <laughs> we will be talking about a that. A lot. Um, consider your own history with movies, and I'm sure there is a movie that you could go back to and be like, yep, that's that movie. That's the movie where like all movies made sense to me now. Oh no, absolutely, and I'm not I'm not at all discrediting no, this no, no, placement. No, no. I just I think this movie warrants a further like a, a discussion beyond the autobiographical well, so I was, I was because actually, there's so, like I, I think just, that's why I was just of, going back to that. Yeah, I think that's that why it the idea up for is you. that we can only have this conversation. Like, I can only recognize how weird and stupid and how so many terrible choices were made with this movie because I saw this movie. No, exactly. You know what I mean? Which is like a weird thing to say. It's almost but it makes kind a of, lot of sense. But it makes sense. Um, I just think, and that's where I was talking about before about the screenplay is bad. He just he picked the wrong things to focus on, and when he focused on them, he didn't focus on them correctly. Like he leaned too heavily onto a John Williams score. He leaned too heavily. John Williams did not lean too heavily on his score. I'm sure he did no. that in two days, and was like, well. Give me another five hundred thousand dollars, and I'll be on my way. I gotta go. I got another. I got another Spielberg movie to do. Yeah, I gotta get out of here. I have another like twenty Oscars to earn with because I'm actually talented, but I really <laughs> don't give a shit about you, Kasdan. Um, Write another Spielberg movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's a it's a problematic movie. It's it not problematic in a good way. It's not it's, problematic no. where you're asking moral social questions. You're just saying like, why do they got to do that? Why do they have to do that? Did they have to do that? Um, but it's problematic in an interesting way. Because of the fact that it was so, at the time, critically well received, it wins the New York Film Yeah, what Critics the fuck circle. is that about? Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, you look historically now, and then like, it's a Metacritic rating. We're not going to talk about Metacritic a lot, but it's, Metacritic rating is like a 53. You know, it's, it's even more malign than something like a crash. And it's a year where there's not a lot of great cinema. but There is some good cinema. There's though. some really good cinema. There's some great cinema. Um, but it's not a year where you can see this stumbling in. And I think it's because people, I mean, I'm making a huge assumption here, but I think it's because there's a framework for something really interesting and something really postmodern here well, that is completely would, abandoned. I don't know if I would go so far as to say there's something, something postmodern would be a completely different aesthetic from what we have. There's scenes that like, they try- making gets called by a son. You know, it, and it, it undercuts the, the, the sound effect. It's like a dream sequence, yeah. Yeah, it has a dream sequence, but it undercuts in, throughout the entire sequence like the alarm. And that's a cleverish decision, but it's so told face forward that it's boring. And well, But there's like, some interesting decisions there that you go like, uh, I could see how someone better could do this really well. Well, so in the novel, when... About when that, I don't think. Oh that, my god, does the dream sequence actually happen? I don't think novel? that happens in the novel. Okay. Um, that feels like a have, film. He decision. does have dreams in the novel, but I don't think it's like a phone call. Um, in the novel, he is experiencing a, a kind of very serious depression himself, where he's kind of uh, tried to limit. He's taken his family's um, dedication to rational, um, to rationalism and efficiency to a whole nother level. To the point where he does his laundry every day post-shower. So he takes a shower and then he throws his clothes in the filled-up bathtub and he stomps on them with the soap 
and then he drives him on the line. He hooks up an electric popcorn maker and coffee maker to his clock because apparently in the 80s... The steam the clothing for the coffee maker? No. So he didn't have to go downstairs to eat breakfast. So his coffee and popcorn, he eats popcorn for breakfast every oh, morning. It's okay. just right there. Well, they have the coffee maker scene but right next to his bed, they don't, ex, they don't which I was ex, confused about, but they now don't it makes explain sense. the stakes there, though. That that coffee maker there is because he can't bring himself to go downstairs and make coffee anymore. So he's just, it's just all there. In the novel, he develops this weird thing where he sleeps in like an env- like a sheet envelope, so he doesn't ever have to clean or change the sheets. He just sleeps in like a sleeping bag made of sheet and then he just washes it and then the, by the end of the night it's he can sleep in it again and then like this you know how he wears the sweatpants that's like a, a long kind of you know slide into i've given up wearing real clothes i'm just gonna wear sweat clothes i don't think the novel's great either because the novel tries to be too cute about it but i think a better director would have recognized and a better screenwriter would have recognized this kind of uh, uh, like a desperate, uh, like a desperation in the novel and would have translated that into a film. Yeah. And which would have made a really interesting film um, and would have made his leaning on his siblings then and their, you know, the very regimented way they live their life make a lot more sense while simultaneously being another um, hint of, rationalism that's gone so far it's irrational and all that stuff is kind of lost in the movie it stays this one weird ball of like this one quirk ball just kind of rolls throughout the whole thing you just pick up one quirky thing after another and that all all it ever is sold as is quirk instead of a kind of sickness and i think it needs to be for this movie to be something different it needs to be developed into a sickness yeah aren't you glad this movie got nominated for best screenplay by the way no not <laughs> it's yeah this is just i think Best we should talk about 19, i think we should talk about 1988 at some point like that this is 1988 was a weird it's was a, a weird, weird year. year and there's a lot to dissect in 1988 well we were talking about this it's gonna be a lot later but we're gonna find, might be a bonus episode yeah. we we're talking about this off air a little bit just to go quick like you know you had last temptation of christ here last temptation of christ only gets in its best director and that's it you and when you have historical references, and I think like we should finish here just like in a quick discussion about 1988, sure. you have historical references now saying like, well, maybe we should have given it the Thin Blue Line for Best Picture because that's a really great documentary. It doesn't even win Best Documentary. It doesn't even get nominated for Best Documentary. Exactly. Um, but the fact that like a documentary is never in the historical discussion of movies that should have won Best Picture. Yeah. Because Rain Man's just so droll. It sucks. Accidental Tourist. You can listen to the past thirty-five to forty minutes of this podcast to hear our opinions. Well, it's, I mean, you know, and working, working girl, girl is fine. I mean, I like Mike Nichols. You know, that's, well, I love Mike Nichols. But, We're going to talk about Mike Nichols in my list later. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything from him on your list, but no, we'll definitely. Well, there's one movie, a late movie of his that I absolutely adore, but like a lot of that year, just like what got focused in on doesn't make sense in it. And it's, it's all I don't very, know if this is like a like a snapshot of what the world wanted at the time or why it wanted that, but like. Well, I remember one of the episodes of um, Brett Easton Ellis was talking to Owen Gleiberman um, from Entertainment. Once Weekly. again, disclaimer: Brett Easton Ellis currently sucks. <laughs> um, and he was um, 
Owen Gleiberman Networks for Variety, and they were talking about what was, was going to win for... He was on EW at the time, right? Yeah, Entertainment Weekly. And he, um, they were talking about Moonlight versus La La Land. Um, and Brett Easton Ellis made the point that... Moon, Brett Easton Ellis did not like Moonlight for the same reasons that I didn't like Moonlight for the same reasons that I think you didn't love Moonlight. Um, and he was... And Owen Gleiberman That's was, a really inauthentic yeah. representation of the world. Like, Call Me By Your Name does a lot. Does everything better. much better? Um, Owen Gardner was making the case that he thinks that he thought that Moonlight might win the Oscar for Best Picture, and Brett Easton Ellis went into typical Brett Easton Ellis mode and said that um, Moonlight wasn't aesthetically an Oscar movie. I think what's ha- I think what happened in the eighties for the Oscars or been for a while, and you can even go into like the nineties, um, is that the Oscars had an the Oscars had a type. No. Yeah. And accidental Taurus fit the Oscar. Type. Woman's Woman's eighty nine, Driving Miss Daisy won in eighty nine, and, and it, well, in yeah, in eighty nine, and then Dances with Wolves in ninety. So like, yeah, they're looking for like a certain aesthetic. Those are in like so the stuff that's nominated in eighty nine is Driving Miss Daisy, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. Um, and three of those films are very clearly within that aesthetic. Yeah, and even like if you look at directors, so Oliver Stone won for Born on the Fourth of July, but then you have Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors, Peter Weir for Dead Poets Society, Kenneth Branagh for Henry V, and Jim Sheridan for My Left Foot. And I think it's one of the things that I appreciate, you know, not to go too deeply into um, Oscar lore here, because we kind of promised ourselves we wouldn't do that. Um, it's one of the things I kind of appreciate about this new, the new or the Oscars recently is that the movies that are getting nominated are not traditional Oscar movies. Like for all of, for everything that's wrong with the shape of water, it's not an Oscar movie. No, not no way is that an Oscar movie. Moonlight's one, not really an Oscar movie. Moonlight's not an Oscar movie. Gravity wasn't an Oscar movie. It doesn't win best picture, but yeah, but it's, but, but it's, Revenant isn't an Oscar. Revenant's movie. not an Oscar movie. Birdman's not a fucking Oscar movie. No way. <laughs> Spotlight. 100% is spotlight's an Oscar movie. Yeah. Fuck you. Spotlight. <laughs> I like spotlight. But oh, I really? Think, I hate Spotlight. You hate Spotlight? I hate Spotlight. But I think it's... I actually think it's... Um, Spotlight and uh, Big a, Short kind of fall in that same, like... Oh, I don't think those are thing. similar. I think those are They're, they're like the exact same movie to me. Interesting. You think enough. so? I don't think so. Hmm. But we're talking about different things here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're just kind of using it as an example where, like, uh, the critical reception to something like The Accidental Tourist in 1988 was that it kind of hit all the notes of one of those prestige studio dramas. But ultimately, you know, talking about that, what what it wanted, you know, what the Oscars wanted at that time, the reason this movie shows up on your list is that what you, that's what you needed at the time, mm-hmm. was you needed that view. And I think you should just kind of sum that up. So I think the, I mean, the, interesting thing, <laughs> the interesting thing to think about in regards to the Oscars in this movie is that this movie has a, it came with a pedigree. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the reasons he probably taught it. And I'll you know just say it again, just to, to tie it up. It is through watching this movie as a seventeen-year-old and having the opportunity to analyze it and kind of dig into how it works um, that I was able to even make this list. Um, and it is the f- pure fault of Lawrence Kasdan that it is not much higher on my list because I think conceivably it should be much higher on my list. So Lawrence Kasdan. We shit talk you a lot in this episode, but we can thank you for two things. 
He gave us Pivotal Film, and he gave us Ewoks. <laughs> so we tip your hat to you. So with that, go to PivotalFilm.com. Follow us on Instagram at Pivotal Film and, um, and Twitter at Pivotal Film. All ran by me, Mario. You can email because yeah, <laughs> because Tom hates hates social media of all types. I do. He's a, he's a real he's a real ain't rights about that. Am I right? <laughs> I am. I want to. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about it right now. We're tying um, that into. If you want to email us about uh, anything, uh, Pivotal Film Podcast at Gmail dot com. Um, Follow us on Facebook at Pivotal Film. Is that a thing now, too? That's going to be a thing. Okay. Pivotal Film, Pivotal Film Podcast. Anything else? Type us in. You got to find it. No, I think you have one thing to say, though. So go uh, watch a movie and drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.